Hi, I'm co-host Lois Donkwa, and this is the 100 Alumni Voices podcast, Stories That Inspire, where we explore the personal and professional journeys of a diverse group of 100 doctoral alumni from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're joined by Abigail Ray Alexander, PhD in German and Romance Languages and Literatures, and current assistant professor of French at Kennesaw State University. Hi, Abby. Hi, Lois. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm excited to dive in and looking forward to our chat. Me too. Me too. So I want to start by hearing a little bit about what made you interested in pursuing a degree in German and Romance languages and literatures and just learn more about your graduate work at Hopkins in general. Absolutely. So it's a mouthful, that degree. And that that is what I understand the former name of the department now. I think that they have renamed the department. So um, my degree was in French literature, 19th century French poetry and literature um, was a concentration. And what brought me to French, um, it started early. Uh, so I was fortunate to um, be taking French courses at the age of eight. That's when I started learning French and it was required for all students at that time. And um, I fell in love with French from the beginning. And, you know, I wanted some other career possibilities that I've gotten to kind of incorporate into my current career. So I thought about maybe being an editor for a while. And um, I thought about maybe going into complet once I started taking the courses that were getting me a little bit closer to my area of specialization in undergrad. Um, but then I met with an advisor an undergrad who recommended uh, going for French. And so that's what I wound up going for. That's so cool. So it's so cool for a lot of reasons. One, I've been um, trying and failing to teach myself French for like 12 years at this point. And I say failing not because I've actively been putting the effort in, but it's more so that I like buy a book or I download an app and I just don't commit. To <laughs> commit. Well, if, if you'd ever like to audit a class, you are welcome. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> um, but I definitely want to dig more into that then. So you started learning French from a young age, but then mm-hmm. I'm struggling to connect the dot between what made you really excited about French literature? Did it stem from being interested in language and literature in general? And yeah. how did that influence how you thought about your degree when you were pursuing it. Mm -hmm. So what inspired the love for French literature was definitely an initial, initial interest and passion for languages and language learning. I took a lot of French and I took a lot of Latin and um, I was in an academic environment from a young age where being uh, very committed to your academics, possibly being a nerd was encouraged. (laughs) So that was a little bit of a nice experience that I understand not everyone gets to enjoy from such a young age. So so, um, I fell in love with the language. I always loved uh, literary studies too. When I went to undergrad at uh, Dartmouth College, I took a freshman seminar on Edgar Allan Poe and um, It was such an awesome experience. It was at like 
four o'clock in the afternoon, but in New Hampshire in the winter, that's dark already at four o'clock. <laughs> and there were also a lot of birds that looked like ravens in Hanover at that time. And so we, you know, do this creepy pose seminar and then step outside and it's dark and there are ravens overhead. And I fell head over heels in love with Poe. And Poe was, you know, a 19th century American writer, but he would have been forgotten amongst American audiences today were it not for 19th century French writers who translated him into French. And then 19th century French readers fell in love with Poe. And then the United States sort of perked back up and were like, oh, wait, we, <laughs> we have a good one here. Let's start reincorporating him into the classroom and, and making him more known in the States. So I really got to 19th century French literature through Poe. Um, and I started to work on the translations that uh, Charles Baudelaire had made of Poe's works. And um, that brought me into the French 19th century. Uh, I love the I love the little history lesson that you just provided. As someone who um, has both really enjoyed my like from my own just creative writing and poetry, I've enjoyed mm. just Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm curious then, when you were pursuing your degree, like what does or what did what direction did you see yourself going in? I guess. Mm-hmm. The PhD, right? This mm-hmm. degree. Yes. Um, so when I was getting the PhD, what I really wanted was to get a job very similar to the job that I have now, which is a, um, it is the job I have now, a tenure track job in French. And um, I say that with a lot of gratitude to the program for helping me get here. Um, and with the recognition that I did not fully understand the reality of the academic job market (laughs) when I first set foot into it. Um, And I was very, very fortunate to get a first job out of uh, grad school in a very small school in Indiana. That was really difficult. Um, It was very, it was just an overload every semester, you know, which I think is something that a lot of people face in that first job if they're going the academic route. I'm sure some people sail straight into R1 tenure track jobs, but, you know, mine was not an R1 immediate experience. So I worked in that job for a few years, and um, then I came to the job that I have now, uh, which is at Kennesaw State. It's coming home for me. I'm from Georgia originally, and so I got to be close to my grandmother and some family members here. And um, I am currently up for tenure right now. And so I just got through the provost level of tenure review, and now we're going up to the president level as the final step. So, um, you know, it's, I feel a little bit guilty about the career that I got because I love it so much, but it is so, um, difficult to get these tenure track jobs in the languages in particular. And I have so many wonderful friends from my PhD program who wound up going different directions and they're all very happy now, you know, but this was kind of the goal for a lot of us, I think at that time. And they're not just friends. My husband is someone that I met in the department and he was in Spanish and he's pivoted um, pretty dramatically in his career path. And he's very, very happy and he's in the right place now. But, you know, it was, we both kind of wanted to think that I have been fortunate enough to get. Uh, well, as again, love so many parts of um, 
what you just mentioned, but um, as someone that loves a meet cute, I love that you met your husband <laughs> through your program. Um, but then I also love that you mentioned that um, kind of in your first role, it was unexpected kind of what that role would be like, mm-hmm. but then also the application process. And mm-hmm. now you're in a moment where things are more familiar, one, because you've done professoring for a bit, but also you're back in Georgia. But yeah. I'd love to um, hear more about the experience of the unknown, like the unknown and kind of how you navigated that and lessons learned and things like that. Sure, sure. Uh, and I think that it's telling that there are so many ways that I could take that, um, the unknown <laughs> here, because in a PhD, I think it's kind of surprising to family members and surprising to people who aren't pursuing PhDs how um, unknown your future might be and how there are a lot of different career paths open to us with these degrees. Um, And, you know, on a very uh, just sort of basic level, like when I was on the job market, both before getting my first job and while I was getting my second job too, there are just so many different places that you can wind up. So I'd be calling my parents like, well, it could be California or Maine or Nevada. You know, it was just like all these different possibilities. And that's really, I think, exciting and invigorating and also totally terrifying when you're just not sure what it's going to look like at first. So that's one big unknown. Um, and I think that a way that I grew following the first time on the job market was I became increasingly discerning about the jobs that I applied for um, in academic jobs, you know, so especially after getting the first job and recognizing geographic preferences and the fact that I, um, you know, didn't really love Southern Indiana and it was a little bit of a shock to the system after Baltimore for sure, which I loved. Um, So yeah, I think that I became a little bit wiser about the jobs that were going to actually work for me and and a little pickier too. I needed to be a fit for both of us. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. I'm curious then, I can see um, some parallels in terms of how there's kind of that uncertainty and feelings of the unknown throughout pursuing a doctorate as well. And I'm curious if slash how parts or lessons that you learned from being in your program kind of prepared you for that moment where you were tested or those same things were tested again? I think that the PhD did a really wonderful job preparing me to work hard and manage my time on my own. Um, I had an awesome PhD advisor who was Jacques Neffs. He's retired now. um, And he was amazing and he was really, really open to a lot of different ideas that we brought to him. We had a lot of 19th century French lit kids in the program with vastly different ideas of what we wanted to do with our dissertations. And he was really open and supportive of them. And so I learned from him and a lot of other teachers, Bill Eggington's another one who comes to mind um, about the kind of teacher that I wanted to be when I became a teacher. And those were my research-oriented influences. Um, But then there's the whole teaching-oriented realm. (laughs) And that kind of stark divide between the two personalities that we can sometimes feel in the two roles. Um, I don't think that it 
you know, I think that it continued. I think that I still feel like there's a pretty significant gap between my research persona and my teaching persona or the, or the fields of work. But um, I was also very lucky to have some amazing models for language teaching while I was at Hopkins. So in the languages, <clears throat> we teach quite a bit and we teach language courses um, on our own to students. At least we did when I was there. And so we really learned quickly how to handle the classroom environment. And I had a great guide for that who kind of molded me into who I am today. And the message across the board with the language teachers and with the research teachers that I was learning from was just kindness and openness and support. And that's something that I think has really helped me with some of the challenges of working with groups of undergraduate students who aren't always quite as academically motivated and prepared as the Hopkins students. Yeah, that's such a good point. Just to kind of remember the perspective of the, especially in your role, um, the students and the people that you're talking with and talking to. And uh, a big thing that was coming up in what you were just talking about was the role of mentors, but then also the importance of having a diverse set of mentors. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was first starting my program, someone sent to me or sent to a group of me and people um, kind of this mentor chart. And it highlighted that all of your mentors fill different roles. So they don't like one person doesn't need to do everything. And I love that you highlighted that because it's so important. Absolutely. I think that's so wonderful that you were given that chart. That's awesome. What a great tool. And absolutely. Yes, they they can't. One person can't do it all for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would love to hear. I'd love to hear kind of really exciting advice or advice that you've held on to from one of your mentors or a couple of your mentors. Um, One is, I think, a little bit funny. Um, And it is something that (laughs) I've held on to. Uh, So I wrote my PhD on Victor Hugo, um, 19th century French writer, and he is very well known for um, being extremely prolific and just has tomes and tomes of work. I think his complete works is over 20 volumes in the library at Hopkins. And so it's a lot to take on. And um, my advisor, I was having a meeting with Jacques Neffs one time, and we were talking about a play like probably the best known play of Victor Hugo's. And I was writing about it. I was writing on the preface, but I hadn't read the play yet. (laughs) And I told him that. And he sort of smiled at me. And then he said, it is a very important thing to be able to write about things that we haven't read sometimes. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, indeed it is. That's right. (laughs) And I think that, you know, uh, especially as technology advances we're in a place to be able to do research in a different way and we should still very much read everything as much as we can but also it just kind of gave me the confidence that I needed at that time to feel like I could speak with some level of authority on Victor Hugo even if I hadn't read every single one of his works. Yeah that's such a good point remembering that sometimes it's drawing on other skills that you have and recognizing okay well what are the patterns that are similar or different from the things I'm aware of and applying that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And 
now that we're talking about it, it was a question that came up in the interview that I had for the job that I have right now. Um, it makes me think of a question along those lines, which was, how would you teach a certain French course? And it's a course that they wanted to know about um, an area of Francophone studies that I am not at all an expert in. I know very little about, but most of my colleagues in my current department are experts in. They're really loaded in this one area. And so I floundered pretty hard for a minute, trying desperately to just think of titles and authors and anything I could say. And after a little embarrassing moment of that, I just kind of stopped and said, you know what, I would just ask my colleagues here, <laughs> what would you advise I incorporate into a class like this, right? And so I think that that we're, we're able to speak authoritatively on things that we haven't, we don't feel like we've mastered maybe. Um, and we're also able to say when we don't know things. And I didn't always do a great job of that as a grad student. I think sometimes I would try to pretend I knew things that I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've all, we've all certainly been there before. Yes. So I can... <laughs> I can understand that. I did hear the other day, um, someone was saying that your strength is recognizing your weakness. So sometimes recognizing that you can't do a thing and knowing the right person to do that thing, that's your strength. And sometimes it's the framing, how you look at, (laughs) look at the situation, right? Absolutely. I love that. (laughs) So I'm curious then what advice would you give to someone who um, is, kind of maybe in their doctorate program or thinking about um, a post-doc, post-doc moment afterwards where they're looking for their next moment and they're in transition mm-hmm. and they're concerned about the uncertainty and they don't know how to navigate that. Absolutely. Um, I think that the advice that I would give is to be open-minded about those first opportunities right out of um, grad school. So, you know, like the first job that I had, was very, very challenging. Um, but when I look back on it now, um, I like to play video games too. And so, you know, it was kind of like, I got so much XP, so many experience points from being a little bit overworked for a few years in a place that I really never imagined myself being, but I'm really glad I did it now because not only did I get all that XP and coming into this job now, felt kind of easy after that first one, even though it's a little bit of a step up in terms of a career. I just trained so hard (laughs) in that first one that it became really easy. But I also had an impact on students' lives in that first job in a way that I don't think I'm probably ever going to have again. Um, And I think being open-minded and being ready to find unexpected, surprising gifts and also delights in this area of work that maybe we don't really think is going to happen for us. That's something that I'm grateful for um, from that first experience out of the PhD. Oh, I love that. Staying open to open, <laughs> open to the unknown, but then also That's just right. open because you don't really know what wonderful things will come from the experience if you get too caught up in the scary parts of it. That's exactly right. And you know, this is something I talk about with a lot of friends who are, you know, still on the market, still finding the place where they're going to wind up. And um, retrospectively, I think that all of the doors that have been closed to me were closed so that other doors could be opened and that I, I feel really happy with where I wound up now. And like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And it had to be the way that it was to get me here. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm a, a believer of things happen for a reason. So that's yes. <laughs> definitely something I'll remember and carry from this conversation. And it's the chat so far has inspired me. And I'm curious as my last question, what inspires yeah. you right now? A lot of things. Um, yeah. Thank you for saying that. First of all, that's really kind. And um, I think my primary source of inspiration right now is probably my family, my, um, you know, my husband and my, our new son that we just had a few months ago has been, uh, you know, we were warned by some professors from the department at Hopkins that this is going to take up a lot of your time, <laughs> but you also get this sort of superpower of being able to do your work really quickly. And I kind of doubted it when they said that. I was like, I'm pretty hard work already. I think I'm already using my time well, but no, they were right. It's like, you have 20 minutes, do everything you can in those 20 minutes. And so that's, that's a big motivator. Um, and I think that I'm in a place of transition for motivation too in my career because um, I am up for tenure. And so preparing the tenure packet isn't the motivator anymore. You know, there, there's another step up after that. There's moving from associate to full. So I do plan to do that in the future, but um, that's not even a requirement. You know, you don't have to do that. So it's kind of a matter of internalizing the motivation at this point. And um, it's a nice part, a nice shift, I think, because now rather than worrying about all the boxes that I need to be checking off all the time. I'm looking with even more of an eye towards what is it exactly that I want to do right now and how do I want to spend my time? Right. It's, it's going back to the being selective about what you're picking, knowing that you, you like did the thing that you'd been working years or decades for. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) what now? Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) It's, which is not a bad place to be in, but it's definitely requires some thinking because you have so many options and that can be overwhelming. So just taking a moment is sometimes necessary. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. And I took a nice little moment right after Theo was born. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm glad to hear. Uh, Abby, it's been so wonderful to chat with you today. I've loved hearing a little bit about your experience and what got you to this moment now? Thank you so much, Lois, and best of luck to you and anyone else who's listening.